Well, good evening and welcome to Let's Talk Vets on WJFF. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Our mission to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Now, for the last couple of programs, we've been focused on prejudice and discrimination in the U.S. military establishment. And tonight, we're going to re-air a very compelling interview we did a while back with founder and CEO of the military sexual trauma movement, Janelle Marino-Mendez. Now, like racial prejudice and discrimination against LGBT members, MST exists as an undercurrent of perversion and abuse of power with the tacit approval of unit commanders. Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director for Program Development, New York State Veterans Affairs, will join us once again to review some important facts about your rights as an MST survivor. But first, here are your dates of note for August. August 4th is Coast Guard's birthday. August 7th is National Purple Heart Day to honor the men and women who have been wounded or killed in military service to this country. August 8th, VJ, Victory Over Japan Day, celebrated at the end of World War II in 1945. And August 29th is the Marine Forces Reserve birthday. Military sexual trauma, like racial prejudice, and discrimination against LGBT members exists as an undercurrent of perversion and an abuse of power. Like the Code Red in the classic film A Few Good Men, you won't find directives on how to sexually abuse someone in any field manual or general order. And like other forms of discrimination, prejudice, and harassment, this will continue to exist as long as the authority to investigate and prosecute those who would engage in this heinous criminal conduct lies within the command structure of the units where the MST incidents are occurring. MST incidents continue to occur. Recently, the body of Vanessa Guillon, a 20-year-old soldier reported missing from a U.S. Army base in Texas in April, was found. Unfortunately, the coward who molested and killed this soldier ended his own life before he could be brought to justice. Well, the best antiseptic for these abuses of power is sunshine, and elevating the visibility of MST makes it hard for those elected and high-ranking military officials to sweep this under the rug. And that's where the military sexual trauma movement and Janelle Mendez come in. Hi, Janelle. How's everyone doing? Good, good. So why did you feel compelled to form this organization? Um, okay, so I myself am a survivor of military sexual trauma. So during my time on active duty, I went through a series of sexual violence at the age of 17 years old. And when I came out of the military, I didn't have any resources available to help me get through the challenges that I was facing. And then as a result, over the years, I was diagnosed by the VA with PTSD and I started seeking treatment in 2018. I uh, miscarried halfway through a pregnancy, and when that happened, the PTSD episode I had was so severe. It was a PTSD episode on steroids, 
And what I realized was that we don't talk about what PTSD due to MST, which is military sexual trauma, what that experience is like. And then what it's like for women specifically, because when I was going through that, I I was going through a PTSD episode, but because of how far I was in the pregnancy, I went through postpartum depression. It made it so profound that it felt like I was, you know, 18 years old going through my first PTSD episode all over again. And my emotional well-being was so damaged. Nothing is being done. And I was frustrated and angry that elected officials are ignoring this. The Department of Defense is ignoring it. The general public has no idea what's going on. And when I looked at the statistics, I was like, this is a crisis and no one is standing up to address it. So I had decided that I was come out and start talking about my experience publicly Um, in hopes that it would inspire others, and that's exactly what happened. Okay, so give our listeners a 10,000-foot general overview of what your mission is. We're lobbying Congress to enact the Military Sexual Trauma Victims' Bill of Rights. Essentially, what we want is by implementing legislation that would create these universal standards across the military as well as within the veteran community. When a veteran has experienced military sexual trauma, they're 10 times more likely to develop substance abuse or addiction issues. And a veteran who has a history of military sexual trauma in their medical file is 70% more likely to commit suicide than a veteran who has not experienced that. So there's legislation that needs to be put in place that prevents those outcomes from happening. And right now, we don't have that with the exception of New York State because we just passed some laws in New York State. How do you feel your efforts have changed the culture in the areas of, to mention a few, underrepresentation, lack of women's services, general invisibility, infrastructure, organizational and facilities recognition, et cetera? Over the last year, our communication scaled to 3 million people across the United States. Um, And that was from survivors literally just sharing content, sharing stories, and really just getting that momentum going. As a result of that happening, we were able to achieve a lot of opportunity. And because of the public interest and the conversations happening in the military community, public officials started to listen and engage with us in a way that they haven't done before. And one of the key things, too, that has happened in New York and that also happened on the federal level, there is a Women's Veterans Day. Like, that didn't exist prior to last year. Do you think that uh, the recognition is because you shine the light of day and some of these people feel now, well, now we have to do something. Yeah, well, that's kind of what happens. If you look at American history since the inception of America, you look at people like Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or Diane Nash or Martin Luther King, Sojourner Truth, like those are very iconic people. They literally started movements based on taking a strong stance to disrupt the establishment until they listen. And I think that is what inspires me to stand up for my community. So on your Facebook page, you've listed uh, some major challenges that you had in 2019. So I'm going to just mention them and you can just comment briefly on each one, please. Managing disabilities. So our movement obviously attracts the affected community. So what happens is not only do I have severe disabilities, 
but the entire movement has severe disabilities. Constantly dealing with triggers. I remember, you know, doing the women's march and that morning when I woke up, I was so triggered. Like I was terrified. I was like, I'm about to tell people what I've gone through and I'm starting to have flashbacks. And now I'm like, I have to go there. I have to go through with this. I have to speak up for my community. I was literally having a full blown PTSD episode flare up. And I had to manage that the entire day to execute what I needed to execute. And that became the most iconic moment for the movement because that's what inspired the Restoration of Honor Act to get approved in New York State. Because the other thing is when a lot of times when people do have PTSD, they have problems with interpersonal relationships. That's like one of the key struggles. So what happens is when you have an entire community that has the same struggle going on, if people are not in treatment, it has an adverse outcome because someone is only able to think for themselves and their fight or flight goes off and they can't understand how their actions could be harmful to all the people they're connected with. I see, you know, volunteers and they're doing their efforts. They're working really hard on themselves. They're having progress with the movement. They're in therapy and I see the healing process happen. And then I see other people who have come in where they're unhealthy and they're not managing their disabilities and they harm everyone else around them. But they don't have the capacity or the awareness to understand. So I have to protect everyone who's really putting in these efforts. And at the same time, I have to manage these struggles from the disabilities. And I have to also come from a place of compassion where I have to understand that like that person is may not be capable to be a part of the movement and that that's also hard conversations I have to have. This has got to be a big one. Resistance from senior military and elected officials. Oh yeah. They well, just don't want to hear it, right? Yeah. You know what I think it is? There's still a fight for equal rights, right? We, we have not achieved the ideal And I think a lot of what happens is there's this mindset, men are superior to women. So if you're going into the military and you're a female, you should expect to have sexual violence. Or if you are a male and you're not macho or you're not assertive or you don't fit this ideal of what it means to be someone in the military, then like, you know, you should expect to experience sexual violence. There's no reason that internal violence should be happening within an organization. But when you have an organization that is designed to protect the interest of one party and harm anything that's coming in its way, obviously that organization is going to have struggle with internal violence. So there is a mindset with senior leaders that this is the only way it could be. When the people within the movement and myself have gone to senior leaders and spoken to them about these obstacles, they just don't want to hear it. They'll give lip service and it it will be conversations of, oh, we're working on it. We have this SHARP program. We're redesigning this and we have this task force that's really fighting this. But in reality, like you cannot solve problems from the same level of consciousness and power that's causing it. So there's no discernible action or, right. or little discernible action yeah. that comes out of these conversations. Incredible levels of courage that you have already expounded on and the courage that it takes to come forward and self-identify oh, as yeah. having had these issues. And then the levels of courage required for a person like yourself or, and others in your organization to speak publicly. It is frightening 
and I feel the fear. You go through that on a regular basis. And I think oftentimes what I've noticed with survivors who do come forward, I see their emotional spectrum play out where they're ready to come forward. But then when they do, they're experiencing the PTSD flare ups. They're experiencing the symptoms that come with it. We, we work together to help everybody process it out, you know, and everyone is managing their disabilities. But I see how the there's an impact from the line of telling the story to getting like getting there. Like I have a willingness to tell my story, but what it actually takes inside of yourself to get there is more courage than you know you have. And it's uncomfortable to the point that you're you're experiencing your disability. So you have to know how to manage it. And then you have to know how to engage with the community to get support in a positive way. But when you get to the other side and you do it, there is a reward and a healing process that I have seen every single person who has made it there, that they've achieved that milestone. And when they do, I see the healing process happen in a way that I don't think they would have gotten from therapy alone. Like when they see that their voice and their story is actually impacting change and it's changing the future for those that come next, I see like this hero instinct emerge in people. Therapy will help you with your disabilities, but to see survivors go through that evolution of being a victim to just surviving to now thriving and being molded into a leader. And when they when they create this new level of courage that they didn't know was in them, that for me is why am I doing this? How about security risks and severe yeah. harassment? I guess we're talking about personal. Well, yeah, so that definitely happens. I, I've gotten death threats. I've gotten serious threats of violence for speaking out. Um, and it's, it has, it's not only been me, it's been other survivors who have spoken out, but it's been like the figureheads, the key people who are constantly speaking out and that are representing the movement uh, across the country. The movement in itself, we do political advocacy, but what I don't think people understand is all movements not only challenge the system politically, but they use their resources to expose the corruption that's causing the injustice. And that that's prevalent within the civil rights movement, like Rosa Parks, the her sitting in the front of a bus actually came from another action and that was planned to create exposure, right? The movement does that. Right. So we have gone after senior figures in the military and exposed their leadership failures because the Department of Defense has they haven't wanted to respond. They've just provided lip service. So when that happens, you have people on the other side of this ideology that are not they they don't agree with women's rights. They don't agree with creating a culture that protects everyone or that protects other minority populations or that, you know, protects the LGBTQ community. So when you're taking a stance as a political figure and it's anything related to civil rights or equal rights, you have to expect that when you're the figurehead, this is going to happen. I knew that, but I didn't realize what it would feel like. And I also had to learn how the security risks that I have can impact everybody around me. And like, that was a sobering, sobering thought. There are these times where I feel the level of responsibility and the weight on my shoulders 
of what I'm actually doing, like the gravity of it. And like, I will sit there and I will just cry because I, I sit there and I'm like, how am I even capable of doing this? I'm disabled myself. And then when I attach that to everyone I'm connected to, like even with my job, I was working in finance for about 12 years and um, I, we got some serious, serious security threats about coming to my job and like not only harming me, but harming the organization. And like I had to get the organization involved. They had to get like global security involved and they had to get armed, armed security guards because of how severe the threats were. So the thing about it is like that's part that's just part of politics. So here's one I didn't think about till I sat down and started to put this together. The silent suffering of male survivors of military sexual trauma. Yeah, so we obviously come across our our movement, there's no gender biases. We do have more females who come out publicly, but we do have a lot of males in the um, movement itself. What we have found with men is that because of the social construct, they have a, a wor- like a worse time. Like I've seen women suffer from this experience, but for men, it's like they're holding on to life by a thread. Even when some of them are, are telling me, I wanna tell my story, I wanna come forward, And even like telling one person in the movement their story, the flashbacks and everything is so severe, like then they can't function for like a week. And then you're like, okay, your social welfare comes first. So we cannot put you forward to speak. And we want to bring more men forward, but the capacity that they have with where they are even being in therapy is challenging. And a lot of that has to do with the social construct. You're a man who has to come out publicly, who has to say that you went through sexual violence and have been victimized in a culture that is not compassionate towards men to begin with. And then now you're a man and you're a victim. Like in American mindset, that's impossible. It's tough enough to get a, a vet with PTSI or TBI yeah. to talk. I mean, a, you know, sexual harassment or sexual violence aside. Right. And, and I can't even imagine uh, what that's like for, for these folks. What are some of your successes? So our major success is that we passed the first bills, well, first laws in U.S. history uh, called the Restoration of Honor Act that was signed by Governor Cuomo. Um, and D.D. Barrett put the, our bills forward that were called the No Bad Paper Bills. It's part of our MST Victims Bill of Rights. There are a, se- a series of policies that we put in through the state level when someone comes out of the military and if they have disabilities like TBI, they have PTSD, if they're part of the LGBTQ community, or if they've gone through military sexual trauma, when they come out of the service and they return to New York, within 30 days, the Department of Defense has to give the veteran service organization in the county that they're returning home to um, their discharge paperwork, as well as the veteran service advocate now has to call them and let them know, even if they have an other than honorable or dishonorable or a bad conduct discharge that's related to disability, related to your sexual identity, or related to going through sexual trauma, you are now entitled to benefits in the state of New York, irregardless of the discharge. Because uh, what happens is when you're when you're in that with these vulnerable classes of service members, um, there is a 67% likelihood that 
that those veterans will end up retaliated against, meaning that their discharges that are preventing them from accessing services is a direct result of retaliation they faced when they actually went forward to their chain of command to talk about gender identity, to have a conversation, or they they did something related to PTSD and they you know, they got in trouble or they reported sexual violence and the chain of command now retaliated against them. So like those circumstances is ultimately like if I can't come, if I come home and I'm homeless now for two years and I don't have money or work experience in the private sector, I now need to engage in dealing drugs because I don't qualify for benefits or I have to get involved in the sex trade and like those illegal trades further put you down a path that's leading you to substance abuse and suicide. So now it's like you're going to come home and be able to get housing benefits, schooling benefits, vacational benefits, medical benefits. And you're going to know that when you return home within the 30-day period. The first one to three years is the highest risk of suicide. So if you can get someone in the first 30 days, set them up for benefits, you're preventing homelessness, substance abuse, and suicide from the beginning. And if you're coming home and you're having the conversations surrounding what happened to you, you can get the right treatment available from the onset. So you're not further being victimized and going through more trauma. So the Restoration of Honor Act is the first laws in U.S. history of their kind. Um, So that has been a major success that we were able to achieve in 2019, and it has been the most rewarding outcome that we've had. So where can uh, people see what that is and read it for themselves or get information? Is there a a place that has a breakdown of it as opposed to reading the bill? Yeah, we have um, the – so our website is mstmovement.org. You can visit our website and then under legislation, it will discuss everything that we have done in in a simple, a much more simple form than reading the actual legislation. So what's your next big thing? Definitely throwing pressure on Congress members across the country and senators. Um, We're doing that now, like that's happening, but to continue putting that, applying that pressure so that Congress takes a hearing on the MST Victims Bill of Rights because- What we actually want on the federal level is the establishment of MIRA, which is the Military Industry Regulatory Authority. Um, It would be a third-party regulator that Congress would establish, and Congress ultimately would have the powers over that organization, and they would regulate the DOD and create universal standards for all leaders and all branches at all levels uh, in the service on on how they have to protect disenfranchised classes of service members that are normally harmed from the current biases that happen. You cannot have that organization with unlimited power regulate themselves. There needs to be a balance of power to protect the vulnerable people underneath them. Um, and, and a great example of that is that in the 1970s, with Wall Street's unlimited power and greed led to investors being robbed on a consistent basis. So once you made it to a certain level in finance, now there's universal federal standards and there's a regulating body called FINRA. So that, that's what inspired um, our legislation for MIRA. And that specifically is what we're looking for Congress to do is step up and say, hey, this body with unregulated power, resources, and intimidation and weapons that can essentially do whatever they want, write down and document whatever they want for an outcome is now going to be regulated and have universal standards on how they exert their power and leadership amongst 
everyone in the military, but specifically protecting the vulnerable populations. So I guess my next question is kind of a moot point. I was going to ask you, do you ever feel there's going to be a point where you can say mission accomplished? I think the mission evolves. So yes, I believe that there will be a point that this mission will be accomplished. The more that I get involved with the community, the more I learn. So like what part of what inspired the Restoration of Honor Act and expanding that to other veterans with disabilities as well as the LGBTQ community was learning people who went through MST but also were like doubly disenfranchised. So I think the movement itself is going to be a stepping stone for much bigger missions later on. Um, right now that this is a big mission, like (laughs) this is a big, like this is the biggest undertaking I've ever done in my life. And like when I'm successful, sometimes with certain things I'm doing myself, it it blows my mind, blows my mind. And then when I see other veterans with disabilities achieving success, it blows my mind even more that that's happening. So it's like, to me, the sky's the limit because if People with severe disabilities, and, and I, I don't know if the, everyone knows this, but when people go through sexual violence, even the general population, uh, nine out of 10 times, you will end up with the most severe type of, of PTSD in the, the episodes, more so than you would from combat or childhood trauma. And then if you combine combat and childhood trauma, it, it's even worse how bad it is. So we're dealing with that population of severe disabilities. So to see people do that, it's remarkable because I have never seen something like that before. And to be a part of it, it, it's truly mind blowing. It's like I sit there sometimes and I'm like, I didn't even know this was possible. And then I, I look at myself and I look at everyone else who's really a part of this huge mission and I'm seeing what we're capable of and I'm thankful. Like it, it's a humbling experience that there's belief in this higher power that's helping pave this path to what is possible when you get to these points and you feel like it's impossible. In terms of of size, how big is your organization? So we have 8,000 supporters uh, across the country uh, that are actively engaged. Uh, Some are on social media, some are doing things behind the scenes. Like it's, everyone does something different. Uh, In terms of um, active volunteers that engage on a regular basis, we have about 400 around the country. And then key leaders where they have evolved to the point in the organization where they're able to do demonstrations, challenge the establishment, use their voice, where they're healthy enough to do that. Um, Right now we have five key people that are able to lead on that level. All right. How do you feel uh, your participation in the uh, Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force has benefited your efforts, and how is your participation benefiting them? That's actually really great, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, So the New York State Veterans Task Force in the Hudson Valley is a group of veteran non-for-profits, elected officials, um, you know, their people come. Like, it's, it's just everybody who's involved in the veteran community in some capacity, And what really was uh, like life changing about that is that that is where the movement really like blew up in New York. Um, Larry Newman, he he's the leader for the New York State Veterans Task Force for anyone who doesn't know that. And he works with Mental Health America. So what ended up happening was I I went and I met with him at the request of Dee Dee Barrett. 
I did the women's march and she was there. And that's why I said that was a really iconic point for where the movement went because when she heard my speech, she she was mind blown. And she invited me in to talk to her. And what was going on was the New York State Veterans Task Force, they were looking to resolve certain issues and primarily veteran homelessness. But one of the key things for Dee Dee was that being the first female veteran chair, she wanted to pursue legislation that would protect female veterans. The problem with that is no one really told her what the female veteran issues were. And she hears my speech at the Women's March and I just remember like being terrified and I come off the stage and she like gives me a huge hug and she was just like, that was powerful. You know, we, we do some meetings, we talk about what's going on and she was like, you're providing me with the most robust education to start working with. What I did was I gave her my medical files that are related to PTSD and military sexual trauma because I wanted her to have an understanding of how it actually affects women. So, you know, she needed an education and I, that was the best way that I could give it to her for her to see how we needed to structure this legislation. That was when she had told me to meet up with Larry. So Larry and I spoke and we connected. And when we spoke about those issues at hand and we're going over everything and, and for him, he's like, I'm receiving an education right now. And you're talking about here's these two people who have a lot of influence in the veteran community in New York State. And both of them are telling me that my story and what I'm communicating to them is an education on what female veterans are experiencing that they had no idea about. So that was when Larry invited me to actually speak to uh, the New York State Task Force, and it was a packed room. So I give a, a presentation and I tell my story along with what's actually happening to this disenfranchised community that that's broken in silence, that that is invisible. It was you know, about an hour long and I get a standing ovation and the, like there was not a dry eye in that room, <laughs> including me. And I just remember at the end, all of these veterans organizations were like, we're, we want to sign on to this. We want to help you. We want to move this forward. And everyone went back to their own organizations. And when they went back to their organizations, MST was now on the radar. And because of that, other opportunities had come up, you know, just like this opportunity. And other opportunities came up where now I was like traveling all across New York and going to all of these organizations and then, you know, working on putting this legislation forward in New York State as well as now representing women veterans in a way that I don't think they've been represented before. So that was a major change where the movement benefited in terms of the task force and how they've benefited. I think me coming and being as vulnerable and honest with my storyline, now these other organizations realize that there was challenges that were essentially inadvertently discriminating against women veterans because like what would happen a lot of times is for you to qualify for this housing benefit, you need to have an honorable discharge. Well, there's a 67% retaliation rate, meaning that all of them have OTHs, BCDs, or dishonorables. So the 70% who are most at risk for homelessness, you can't even help because they were retaliated against. And at the same time, your policy is inadvertently inhibiting you from actually helping the people you want to help. So I think I was able to come in and provide that education and that the movement was able to work with all of these people to now say, okay, we need policy changes. So you provided a completely fresh perspective to a lot of folks. Well, it sounds to me like you're 
doing a great job at that. So uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time. So in closing thoughts, how can folks get together and help? You can go to the volunteer section of our website and you can sign up there to volunteer if you want to get actively engaged. So if you sign up, that's the first step. And then we'll work on an onboarding process and a screening process because as I mentioned, this isn't for everyone. It's a, it's a political movement. So, you know, there is a screening process that does go on. Well, there's, but folks don't have to be uh, aff- directly, personally affected. No, 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 no. They don't to have help to. Out. They don't have to be. Um, we So we're, we're pretty open. But I will tell you that the people who generally stand up to volunteer have been affected. Okay. That's normally what happens. Right. A lot of times people who are maybe like second or third generation separated, like maybe a mom, a, a sibling or someone like that. Um, who's not directly affected, they generally will want to be on our newsletter. They'll be a supporter. They'll share content or they'll donate. In terms of our website, though, our website has everything. So you can... What is up. what is that website? mstmovement.org mm-hmm. is where you can go. And it, when you engage in the website, it has everything for you to educate yourself on what's happening and how to get involved. And also there's stories of what people have done already and you can see who's already laid down the roadmap. And you're on Facebook too. Yes, we're on Facebook, the Military Sexual Trauma Movement. We're on Twitter under MST Movement. We're on Instagram under Military Sexual Trauma because we couldn't put movement at the end. So yeah, we're we're on everything. Your email? Uh, My email is Janelle at mstmovement.org. And if people want to contact you by phone? Um, so our, my number is 914-703-7344. That's going to be the best place to get in contact. Thank um, you, Janelle. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, and you're listening to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Last week, we checked in with Janelle to find out what progress the military sexual trauma movement has made since we originally aired in March. Welcome again, Janelle. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Um, Since last time we talked in March, a lot has happened with your organization. Can you bring us up to date on that? Of course. Ever since, you know, COVID happened, a lot of plans definitely changed in the way we have to operate. So it was a little difficult just because we're such a new organization. But, um, you know, we ended up working on our Mira bills that I spoke about a little bit last time and we started petitioning for that where we've gotten over 10,000 signatures in less than a month Um, and we're still petitioning for that as well but we ended up um, you know going to Houston Texas during the rallies and vigils for Vanessa Guillen and we started giving some speeches on Mira and really like revitalizing that campaign on a national level where you know it did hit CNN and a couple other news stations and some local news stations in Houston, Texas, and um, up here in the Hudson Valley. So it's been getting a lot of attention, and I'm definitely happy about that. Are you getting any indication from uh, the Congress that they're um, interested in tackling this? 
So, I mean, there it's a lot of lip service like it normally is. You know, every every person we talk to is like, yeah, we're supportive, but, you know, it's hard to establish a third-party regulatory authority or it's, it's difficult to do that. Like, it, it'll begin with, yeah, I'm supportive of the military and what you're doing, but there needs to be, like, an easier way to address it. And I think that that's really, like, the main problem because, like, we already have FINRA, which regulates Wall Street. So it's 100% possible to do what we're looking for by having a regulatory body established for the military. But I honestly feel like the DOD has so much power that a lot of people in Congress are, like, scared to take that kind of bold stand. Yeah, aside from uh, the direct impact on MST, what would this regulatory body look like? Right now, there are different bills regarding military sexual trauma, but MIRA, the Military Industry Regulatory Authority, is the only set of bills that protects against racism, discrimination, sexism, and sexual violence. Um, and that is because MIRA would be a third-party regulatory body, which would be a private sector non-for-profit considered a self-regulatory authority by Congress. So Congress would essentially have the powers over MIRA, and in that third-party regulatory body, they would license, train, audit, and take complaints of racism, discrimination, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, um, you know, anything that's really harmful to diversity and inclusivity, um, MIRA addresses as a third-party regulatory authority. And in the event that there's leaders that are leading in a way that's harmful to minority populations, they would um, issue disciplinary actions against the Department of Defense and the leaders that are harming individuals. So MIRA would, would set universal standards across all branches of service and all leadership across all branches where they would essentially protect and create a more equal and diverse military. Well, you've had some uh, national exposure on uh, CNN. Have either one of the presidential campaigns expressed any interest in uh, your plight? Um, for the presidential stuff, we haven't had that. We've had we have had other senators and Congress people who like were running earlier on who dropped out express interest, but like the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign, I mean, if I'm honest, I don't really think the Trump campaign at all is going to show interest. Um, and Biden's campaign, I don't know either, just is a pretty progressive stance for the military, even though it's what's needed. So I don't know that the either one of them would perhaps take an interest in it. Now, last time we talked in the original interview, which aired just before this, uh, you cited a an exponential growth in people engaging with this conversation? Um, well, our platform since March has doubled. So, you know, our following, our email list quadrupled. So a lot of people are definitely engaging with us and the conversations we're having. And I, I think also it's partly because we have moved in a more provocative direction in terms of our advertisements where we've made really bold political statements um, regarding sexuality, too. And I think because of that is the reason we're garnering the attention and the controversies that we are. And I think because of that, it's creating more awareness, which is ultimately the goal. 
Okay, well, it sounds to me like you're on the right track. Keep up the good fight and uh, good luck. And thanks so much Thank for uh, taking the time to have this conversation and bring our listeners up to date. Yeah, and if anyone does want to sign our Mira petition, uh, we're still gathering signatures for that. They can go to mstmovement.org forward slash M-I-R-A. Okay, that'll work. How about a phone number for uh, getting in contact with your organization? Yeah, if anyone wants to stand in contact, it's 914-703-7344. Okay, Janelle Mendez, thanks again. All right, thank you. And now, here's Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director for Program Development, New York State Veterans Affairs, with some important information for survivors of military sexual trauma. Well, thanks again for joining us, Ben, on very short notice. The... uh, Last time we spoke, we discussed New York State's Restoration of Honor Act and the options this legislation provides for those with less than honorable discharges to possibly have their discharges upgraded so they can qualify for New York State veterans' benefits. Tonight we're focused on MST, military sexual trauma, a very important topic. And aside from Restoration of Honor Act, what other important facts should our vets be aware of? Doug, it's nice to be back on, and thank you for covering this topic, which unfortunately remains very important and unfortunately remains uh, quite prevalent among the veterans whom we are serving in the state of New York. I want to talk about a couple of, of misconceptions that commonly exist around military sexual trauma as it pertains to VA benefits, particularly VA benefits for disability compensation. First and foremost is the misconception that unless there was a physical assault committed, the victim did not suffer military sexual trauma. That absolutely is not true. It's not true in fact, and it's not true in law. Of Title 38, Section 3.304, Subsection F5 of the Code of Federal Regs makes it very clear that it is not limited to physical assaults. If there is a course of conduct of harassment, for example, that can also constitute military sexual trauma under federal law and can be, therefore, compensable benefits arising from medical conditions that come from that. Now, the most common mistake that we see being made, and it's an understandable misconception, uh, regarding military sexual trauma in the disability context Uh, is that there is no disability compensation award of benefits for MST. What there is is disability compensation benefits for mental health conditions that arise because of military sexual trauma. For example, PTSD. For example, depression. For example, general anxiety disorder. So you have to have 
a diagnosable condition to show that the military sexual trauma led to the following condition or conditions, physical and or mental conditions uh, that, that can be compensated by the VA. Another common myth that we look at is the fact that the VA can grant a claim for a mental health condition or a physical health condition that was caused by or worsened by sexual trauma in the military, even without having documentation in place from the military itself verifying that the personal assault was committed. So the VA is not permitted to deny a disability compensation claim simply because the personal assault was not reported. The VA has regulations on that saying we know that not all sexual trauma events are reported. We know that not all sexual trauma events are documented. And so when it comes to the standard of evidence that the VA requires for a disability compensation claim where the disability was caused by or worsened by military sexual trauma, what the VA is required to look for are what they call markers, right? signs, events, or circumstances providing indications that the traumatic event happened. So that could be records from law enforcement. That could be records from mental health counseling centers or from hospitals or from physicians. But it can also be what's commonly referred to as lay evidence, letters or statements from people who knew the veteran around the time when the, when the personal assault was committed and can vouch for a change in that veteran's behavior or mindset or attitude or conduct. And this can run the gamut. This can be people in the veteran's family. This can be members of the clergy who know the veteran. This can be people who served alongside the veteran in the military. This can be people who served as a counselor for the veteran or as an employer of, of the veteran. The, the door is really wide open uh, to show through the course of these, these letters, what are commonly referred to as lay statements or buddy statements, that there was a change in behavior or a change in conduct as a marker that, yeah, this person went through a traumatic event around this same time. Other kinds of evidence that could be brought forward is the onset of substance use, illegal substance use or alcoholism around that time. Why at this particular time did this person who never used drugs or never drank to excess before suddenly began doing so? Well, it could be because of self-medication to cope with the aftermath of the trauma that this person experienced while in the military. And it could be a situation also, we show, look, there are episodes of things like panic attacks or depression or anxiety without a clear cause. Remember, the VA standard is always at least as likely as not. doesn't have to be beyond a reasonable doubt like criminal law, right? It's at least as likely as not. So if you show that all of a sudden this person began suffering panic attacks or episodes of anxiety or episodes of depression without any other clear cause, that can be valuable evidence to prove to the VA that, yes, this person was unfortunately a victim of military sexual trauma. And then one final myth uh, that I want to clear up. There's a lot of times where I've heard people say that if the veteran is someone who, while serving in the military, suffered the sexual trauma while off base or while off duty, 
they cannot receive disability compensation from the VA for a mental health condition or a physical health condition resulting from that trauma. That is absolutely not the case. If the trauma happened while the person was serving in the military, even if it was while they were off base, even if it was while they were off duty, it still meets the parameters of the federal regs of military sexual trauma, and that person is eligible to receive disability compensation payments from the VA for any medical condition that results from that trauma. So that's a lot of information that hopefully clears up some of the, the mythology around when people are or are not eligible for disability compensation benefits uh, when they have been military sexual trauma victims. And I'm happy to answer any additional questions that you might have uh, around that topic. And again, the information you just discussed uh, applies nationwide. It's not exclusive to the state of New York, correct? That's right. These are, are federal disability compensation benefits, federal laws and regs. It applies nationwide. All right. And as, as usual, I, one of the primary points that we make in these interviews is don't assume anything. Call and ask. Reach out and ask the question. Absolutely correct. Yeah. You know, I, I always say there are more than 20 million veterans right now in the U.S., and that means there are more than 20 million unique stories before service, during service, and after service. And so on the advocacy side of the house, it's crucial to never assume because everyone's story is different. Everyone's experience is unique and has to be treated as such. And the flip side of that for veterans, uh, when it comes to any veteran's benefit or service, just like you said, Doug, we have to make certain that uh, there are no assumptions made because that, that's the, the mythology gets perpetuated. And so if, if you have any questions at all, just, just call someone who works in this field like ourselves in the State Division of Veteran Services day after day, so we can get you the answer, research the answer for you if needed, and provide you with the accurate information that you need, as opposed to perhaps falling into the trap of believing one of those myths that we just talked about. And what are those numbers if somebody wants to reach out to the New York State Department of Veterans Affairs? Best number to call us is 1-800-838-838. 7697. That's 1-800-838-7697. And that will take you to our call center. It is not automated. You will really talk to a human being and you will be routed to the Veterans Benefits Advisor who works in our division field office closest to where you are geographically. So you'll be able to actually get localized service from somebody who has training and accreditation in this work. So those are the uh, veteran service offices that are located, I believe, in every county except two in New York State, correct? Those are for the New York State Division of Veteran Services field offices, uh, which, which cover all of the counties. We aren't physically located in each county, but we have coverage for all of the counties. In addition to that, each county in the state, with the exception of one, has a county veteran service agency, and they provide the same services that we do also free of charge, just like our services, in representing veterans and their families in what we call the preparation, presentation, and prosecution of claims and appeals for veterans' benefits. Well, as always, thank you, Ben. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You're very informative, and I hope you have a great day, and uh, we'll be talking again. We certainly will, Doug. Thank you so much, and thank you for covering these important issues on your show. 
And to all who are listening who have served in the military, thank you for your service. Thank you. So I guess we'll have to put the wraps on another one. Our thanks tonight to Janelle Mendez, founder and CEO of the Military Sexual Trauma Movement, and Ben Pomerantz, Deputy Director of Program Development, New York State Veterans Affairs. And of course, to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org or leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. So we spent the last three programs discussing the elephant in the room. Of course, that's prejudice, bias, and discrimination in the U.S. military. Regardless of what form this takes, it has serious implications. The result is that many of our Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Coast Guard personnel are robbed of advancement, self-respect, dignity, and often bear the lasting effects of PTSD. To add insult to injury, many leave the service with bad paper, so they're unable to access the benefits they have earned. On average of 22 veterans commit suicide each day in the U.S., the majority of those are battling the lasting effects of abuse suffered at the hands of fellow servicemen or their superiors. On the next Let's Talk Vets, August 26th, we'll feature a conversation with Marty Klein of Woodstock, New York. He's the founder of a movement called Why Can't We Serve and producer of a film by the same name. Marty was discharged from the United States Air Force due to diminished vision and seven years later was totally blind. He went through a long period of self-doubt, loss of identity, self-pity, and many other challenges. One day he snapped and decided he had to take control to survive. So he started the movement called Why Can't We Serve? This movement is built on a simple premise that servicemen and women who are injured or develop disabilities while serving our country should be able to continue to serve with the same accommodations we demand from private industry under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we'll leave you tonight with the anthem that Marty wrote for that movement and a question to ponder about all of these things. What's wrong with this picture? Good night. the will to survive If I get what I need to stay alive And I don't indulge in feeling so deprived I gotta make a move to get myself satisfied If you get what you need to stay alive That's right And if you don't indulge in feeling so deprived You gotta make a move to get yourself
get yourself satisfied. You've got to get yourself satisfied. And you don't indulge in feeling so deprived. You've got to get yourself satisfied. If I get what I need, stay alive, and I don't. 